So I, this is how I often practice myself uh, and with others. And to be realistic, it does take a lot of effort. You, you do have to sit every day. You know, practice has to be, your meditation practice has to be not something that you do once in a while. It has to be basically the basis of everything in your life, which means you probably sit every day on a, a regularly. You go to retreats regularly. Um, now, I, I hasten to say in the example that I've given that um, even after I solved the koan of, of my, my feelings in relation to my wife, that doesn't mean that I now necessarily mean. It might, it might actually completely change my relationship to my wife. But maybe not. So maybe I still go to the counselor. I don't know. You know. So I, I've seen it happen both ways. It's sometimes it's a rather astonishing. Sometimes a whole problem that seems like working this through is like all these things involved and very complicated. It just goes away. Gone, you know, as a result of this practice. Sometimes not. Sometimes the result is, aha, now I get it, and we still have to work through all those. But we can now, we can do it, I mean, because couples counseling, of course, doesn't always work, right? People go to couples counseling for a long time, or whatever kind of counseling it is, and come out the other end without any improvement whatsoever, because somehow there has to be an inspiration. So this is what the koan does. It gives us a real inspiration and understanding which either clears up the problem or gives us the strength and the commitment and the ability to work on the problem on a more relative level. So I conclude then these remarks about koan study with this possibility that a way, a way of understanding koan practice without, I think, um, losing any of the depth that the koan practice offers, but at the same time applying it uh, to our daily living in a more direct way as Genjo koan. And that's my, in my practice, that's my favorite method. Uh, I do uh, sometimes turn my attention to koan and uh, talk about koans, as I will this afternoon with you. I do sometimes, uh, for students who are interested, uh, assign koan. But I think the Genjo koan is the most important practice for those of us living in the world and, and facing the ordinary, everyday difficulties of human relationships and uh, fast-paced world, which is slightly crazy, or more than slightly. So that's my, that's what I wanted to say about, in general, about koan. And I'm happy to, uh, if anything you want to ask about that or bring up or comment on, please. Mm-hmm. So if you have a situation, say, <clears throat> I like a lot of different parts. Mm-hmm. I'm not into, say, okay. why am I angry? Or what is this anger about? Yeah. Um, I can understand going and sitting in the chair to do that. <coughs> yeah. um, and I know a little bit of the, the personal way of looking at it. There's, instead of focusing on the feeling, um, emotion, of, of content. And yeah. Yeah. In that sense, it's similar. Yeah. Down to my stomach, 
yeah, yeah. 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 But how do I do that in the moment? So I, I, I sort of drop down in the body and have that question also yeah. repeating that. And does it really work in like while I'm moving around and yeah, well, well, what happens is, you, you, over time, you develop this practice to the point where um, there's no words. Because uh, you, you begin to see that the words are rather artificial. And it's more like, uh, it's very similar to what you described. It's more like <clears throat> dropping down to the level of the feelings, only instead of uh, being aware of the feelings as an object and trying to understand them or analyze them or observe them, <clears throat> it's more like you become the feelings as a question, as a feeling of what is going on, you know, what, what is this? So that there's no, and this does take some committed training over time, that you can develop this spirit or this ability to more or less, just I think your phrase, to drop down is very good, you, to drop down to the level of what you're feeling be very, very immediately present with it, with a, sp- a feeling of inquiry, without any any words. But uh, to get there, you may actually spend a lot of hours repeating the words, you know, over time, and you may find yourself sometimes uh, in, a, in in that moment dropping down to your feelings and, and using the words "What is it?" But after a while, that that falls away. It's, it seems it seems a little clunky or unnecessary, and it's just this almost a texture of being immediately present with inquiry. And then uh, one is not one is just by virtue of that one is no longer caught in the way one would have been otherwise, where the various kinds of um, clashes and some scars around those feelings t- kick in, and you start acting on it and making matters worse, as we so often do. You know, we, I mean, things. My my, my I often say my idea of Buddhism is. Just don't make things worse, you know. <laughs> and 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 it, and it is uh, when you begin to look, you notice how active we all are, you know, in making things worse. Constant things are bad, you know. It's not that everything is rosy. There are a lot of problems. Uh, but if you didn't make them worse, I think the problems would be uh, actually uh, could even be wonderful challenges. Yes, life is interesting. There are problems, but just don't make them worse. Yeah, so I think this kind of Genjo Koan practice would help one quite a bit not to make things worse. Mm-hmm. I have a um, somewhat of a historical question. I was interested in what you had to say about how in Chinese, in Zen Buddhism, that Koan was used to bring the practice, at least this is what I heard you say, of bringing the samadhi and the uh, pasana together in yes. one practice. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I really, I think, as I said in the beginning, uh, particularly, you know, what what the American Vipassana movement is a, a development that's, you know, recent, and it's developed in the context of world Buddhism. So I, as far as I can tell, I know lots of. Vipassana teachers and have practiced Vipassana and gone to Vipassana retreats. And as far as I can tell, there isn't all that much difference, really. I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I think that 
there are there's a kind of some kind of classical vipassana that bypasses samadhi and there's samadhi practice, but mostly what we practice here is not so much difference between Zen meditation and vipassana. So I think a lot of vipassana teachers do practice samadhi and vipassana as one practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Japanese word. There's no plural in, ja- in Japanese words. Oh. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there are communities of people whose lives currently are devoted to this practice. Oh yes, oh yes. The uh, uh, actually um, the lineage of Zen that was uh, that was founded by uh, Taizen Maizumi in L.A which now has various branches and teachers, they, although there is Soto lineage, <coughs> they, um, they practice koan system. And also the lineage uh, that was started in the West by uh, Robert Aiken, which is a lay Zen lineage. It's a fairly recent lineage. Uh, that lineage also practices koan study. And so there are many, many teachers in both those lineages uh, those are the main two lineages that do koan study in the West. Also, the lineage in the Rochester Zen Center, where uh, Kaplan Roshi, I think they also practice koan. So there's lots of koan study that goes on in the West. Our, our lineage doesn't. Uh, we study koan in the do- way Dogen did it by speaking about koan and having a studying koan in our daily life practice, but not going through a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah. Japanese doesn't have uh, tenses or yeah, so you know by context whether it's yesterday or today or one koan or one thousand koan. Yeah. In practicing uh, Genjong koan as, as uh, a focus for mm-hmm. daily meditation practice, do you, do you recommend, you know, that, let's say, sitting down at seven in the morning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah. Well, I think it helps to work through with the teacher, you know, and get some feedback and guidance, and somehow that seals the koan and makes it real. Because there is this problem of, well, I just pick and choose koans. I'm like, what is this real, you know? And then you can't commit yourself to it. The, when it's given to you or sanctioned by somebody that you respect in the Dharma with whom you're in a relationship, it seals it for you. And then you feel that you can actually give yourself to it. Because uh, meditation practice is interesting, you know. It requires a certain kind of full commitment and devotion, which if you're shaky about that, hinders the practice, right? But that's not to say you have to have a teacher to, to do this. It just makes it easier in, in, in that way. So I would say there's two approaches. One is, and I think we have to be careful here, this is not about analyzing our feelings or trying to understand our feelings. So I wouldn't myself, if I had if something happened yesterday that was emotionally trying, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, then I better 
meditate on that today. But if there is, seems to be a theme, some like if, if one notices that there's a certain kind of reactivity that keeps coming up, seems to be a theme of this time in my life. So it's not just that yesterday I was angry at somebody, but that I've been experiencing many moments of the same kind of anger in different ways. I might then take that as a koan. What is, what is anger? I might craft my own koan. What is anger? What is fear? And breathe with that. That would be one way. The other way would be just the koan of the present moment. What is life? What is being? What is this moment? What is the breath? I mean, I, I have a way of practicing with the breath where I, by stages, develop concentration on the breath and then inquire of the breath. What is this breath? Which is a way of saying, what is this life? Uh, and, and again, it's not a matter of so much breaking through all of a sudden and having this great insight as it is bringing yourself to that level of your living, to that level of, you know, recognizing this is life. What is this? It's kind of like, <clears throat> that's the basis for everything, right? We don't have life. None of our problems would exist, right? <clears throat> that's the way to solve all your problems. Don't be alive. Then you have no problems. <clears throat> but, uh, so the basis for all of our problems and joys and hopes and fears, we, give, we have no interest in whatsoever, <laughs> right? We're interested in our hopes, our fears, our desires, and so forth. But we have no interest whatsoever in the fundamental basis of them all, which is this life and what is it. So if you meditate like that in the morning, every returning to, you know, what is it? What is this life? It's as if you're waking up the basis. And then what happens, you know, over practice over time is that that basis is never far away. Never far away. You look at the sky. It's right there. You feel a powerful emotion. It's right there. And so you want to develop and cultivate this, this capacity to be very close always to the basis of everything. And like I say, ordinary life more or less is absolutely forgetting about the basis. One never notices one is alive. We're too busy complaining, you know, about our problems. Even no matter how many problems you have, you know, you are alive. You have no idea how you got that way. You didn't make it happen. You didn't particularly deserve it or do anything about it. It can be taken away from you at any moment. This is a fantastic paradox, completely unknown. You never give a thought to it. You never appreciate it. You never wonder about it. You don't even know that it's so because the rent is due. And you lost your checkbook or whatever, you know. Yeah, the rent is due. You did lose your checkbook, but you're alive. And a whole different thing when you remember that, when you're always close to that. And I think that's what, fundamentally, what koan practice is all about, keeping you close to that fact so that it's always, you know, at your fingertips. Yeah. Mm hmm You sit regularly with the Mu koan? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I immediately come up against that uh, source of human misunderstanding that I find it challenging to make myself understood. Mm. That I see other people finding it challenging to make 
An issue with anatta? An mm-hmm. I, I read that there is no self. I mm-hmm. this is what I'm told. I'm committed to this practice. Mm-hmm. But I, I continue to have some trouble understanding if it was the case that I had no self and that there really was no who. Mm. You all heard what he said, right? You could hear him? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for that. That's a precious question. Uh, So, one thing is that uh, I would say myself that in reality, we all express ourselves perfectly and are constantly perfectly understood. I actually don't think that this is really a problem, but Certainly, in our experience, we don't feel that. And this is what you're speaking to. So it's, it's not a matter of kind of slack, slashing your way through the, the, the uh, clumsy means of communications that we're, uh, you know, always working with till you find a way to make it right. It's more a, a matter of coming to a recognition that regardless of how much we are constantly misunderstanding each other, uh, we also are always meeting heart to heart and face to face because we are so close to one another and so intimate with one another in, because we're all occupying being together, you know? So there's a kind of immense closeness and a perfection of our communication. So it's more a matter of kind of recognizing that than it, than it is figuring out how to communicate and uh, studying within ourselves the real source of our feelings of not being heard and not being understood, not understanding and not hearing others. Uh, Those feelings and and, and thoughts need to be clarified and worked with, for sure, on a foundation of the recognition that there is perfect communication. Then uh, your point about anatta, no self, um, personally, I, I don't think that the Buddha taught that there is no self and that there's no who. I actually don't believe that the Buddha taught that. I, I believe that when he taught, he certainly taught about, used that term, but there are sutras where he, um, he basically says, if I say there's a self, this is incorrect. If I say there's no self, this is also incorrect. Uh, the Buddha was not interested in propounding a doctrine uh, that there's no self and making us all feel like idiots. How come if there's no self, how come I'm you know, worried, worried? Or how come I have these experiences which seem to indicate a self? He wasn't trying to mess us up in that way. I think he was only trying to let us know that 
our understanding of the self, our relationship to it, is, is causing us to suffer. We need to understand this experience that we have of subjectivity, that we actually have this experience of subjectivity. We need to understand it in a radically different way and appreciate it and live it in a radically different way than the way that we're living it. And so in order to try to explain what that different way would look like, he talked about anatta. The self, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like I have a friend who's a rabbi, and my favorite story that he tells is uh, about somebody who comes screaming into him, angry, you know. Rabbis have to deal with this, you know. Comes run, running, screaming at him, angry, saying, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. And, and my friend says, well, hold on, you know, relax. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. <laughs> so the person then goes on a rant, you know, about this God that he doesn't believe in. And at the end of the rant, the rabbi says, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> so in other words, uh, no self is just like, the self that you believe in is not the self that you are. That's what no self is designed to teach us. You know, uh, we do have an experience of subjectivity. It needs to be clarified. If we clarify it, we can live differently. Yeah, I think that's the burden of the Buddhist teachings. And uh, in, in the, um, not in the Pali suttas, but in later Mahayana teachings, there's a whole kind of map of mind which includes a whole sort of level of consciousness which is called self. You know, and, and there's a whole big, how subjectivity functions in the context of our experiencing, perceiving, and feeling, and so forth and so on. And, and uh, in, that, in that way of talking about it, instead of talking about no self, what's talked about is a revolution. It's actually the word revolution is used. A revolution in the way self is lived and perceived. A revolution. And I think that's what the Buddha was indicating when he talked about no self. He meant there needs to be a, a real, completely different understanding of self. In the teaching, the mind only, the teachings of Buddhism, the Vijnapti Matrada teachings or the Yogacara teachings, Thich Nhat Hanh writes about it in his book, uh, which I think is very readable. These teachings, unfortunately, are super hard to understand in, in their Indian philosophical uh, guise, especially with translated into English and so forth. But Thich Nhat Hanh has a book called uh, 50... Transformation at the base, yeah. Transformation at the base, and uh, it's possible that I, I've given a series of lectures on these, this book, and it's possible that they're available on my website. I don't know if they are. If they're not, you can email the tapes person and ask her to send them. But uh, transformation at the base. Uh, these is interesting, important teachings for us because. I think for Western people, we have such a culture of self and ego and so forth that uh, I think it's counterproductive to get too focused on the idea of no self because you end up sort of denying your basic psychology, which was not the Buddha's idea. Shall we take a little break now?
It's uh, 11 o'clock. Can we break till 11.15? Thank you very much.